Welcome back to the Tim Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Leo Sapir. He's an adjunct fellow, a new one at the Manhattan Institute. He received a PhD in political science from Boston College and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard. He's written several articles for City Journal, both in print and online, about the new gender politics in the United States. Today, we'll be discussing his background, his recent work for City Journal, and his thoughts on the future direction of the debate over transgenderism and schools and other, other public issues uh, in the West. So, so Leo, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, so this is your first time on the 10 Blocks podcast, and uh, you've recently become an Institute, Manhattan Institute fellow, as I mentioned. Uh, but you're writer, rewriting, and, you know, I'd, I'd urge our listeners to check, to check it out, is, uh, is bringing a kind of sobriety and incisiveness to a conversation that's often lacking in both qualities in the country. So uh, why don't you talk a bit about your academic background and how you became interested in all of these controversies over transgenderism? Sure, sure. So first of all, um, thanks for the, the, the warm words and the compliment. Um, I finished my comprehensive exams uh, in May of 2016. And I was trying at the time to think of a good dissertation topic uh, that would combine my interests in political philosophy and American government. Now, it just so happened that the same week I completed my exams, the Office for Civil Rights and the Obama administration's Department of Education hard, uh, handed down a dear colleague letter on transgender students. Um, in that letter, it explained that you know, schools must stop classifying students by their natal sex and defer instead to what OCR was calling their inner sense of gender. And if they didn't do this, they would uh, risk losing federal funding. Now, like most Americans who had heard about the Dear Colleague letter, um, it caught me completely by surprise. Um, you know, here you had uh, the federal government declaring that a, a definition of human nature that has been with us since time immemorial, um, that can be found across pretty much all cultures, um, is not just wrong, but that, that its enforcement um, constitutes a violation of a person's basic dignity as a human being to say nothing of, you know, our civil rights laws. Um, so, you know, aside from the speed at which all of these things unfolded, two, th two things really struck me about um, this dear colleague letter. Um, first, OCR offered no explanation for why the conventional view of human sex differences was, uh, as it put it, a stereotype. Um, all it did was to say, this is what courts have said in the past, and we, OCR, are just deferring to the courts and enforcing a well-recognized interpretation of Title IX. Um, you know, I, I spent some time digging into this, Brian, doing some um, legal archaeology, and I very quickly saw that this claim was just flat out wrong and easily refuted, because the cases that OCR was citing, uh, in which courts did rule in favor of transgender women, were employment cases under Title VII, and courts ruled in favor of transgender women on the grounds that they were really biological males who defied stereotypes about male appearance and behavior. In other words, these courts were assuming the conventional definition of sex that OCR was now saying that courts have long said is wrong. Um, second, I noticed that, you know, the OCR's dear colleague letter contradicted itself. Um, after telling schools that only a subjective sense of self determines one's status as male or female, 
Um, OCR then went on to say that when it comes to sports, schools could take into account physical characteristics. Um, so by OCR's own logic, school, schools were both required and prohibited from resorting to stereotypes. Just a bundle of contradictions and incoherence, in other words. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess the final thing that, that I'll mention is that, you know, when it came to maintaining rest, separate restrooms, dorms, locker rooms, um, OCR said that schools were to give the, quote, discomfort of non-transgender students, by which they mean, you know, feelings of having their privacy violated, um, absolutely no consideration. Um, but this begs the question, which can't, comes up over and over and over in these lawsuits, um, which is, if not because of physical distinctions between boys and girls and the privacy concerns that arise from those distinctions, why on earth separate restrooms in the first place? And I should point out that even in the academy and kind of the postmodern, you know, sections of critical theory in the academy, um, it's especially there where you'll find transgender advocates openly saying the exact same thing, that if we define sex as gender identity, the logic requires us to eliminate all sex segregation in restrooms. Um, but that is not the position that you know, advocacy groups like a the ACLU and federal judges took. In fact, they thought that that was, uh, as one court put it, a red herring. So against my better judgment, you know, I decided to write a dissertation trying to explain the legal, institutional, jurisprudential, and I think also philosophical foundations for this um, really remarkable evolution in our civil rights law. In one of these recent pieces you've done for City Journal, uh, you looked at the debate surrounding a transgender athletes' participation in women's sports. This is this is an area that the public is is paying some attention to. So, athletes who identify as transgender women but were born male, you know, common sense and I think you would say science would seem to indicate possess physical advantages over biological females. So, you you have the notorious case of the University of Pennsylvania swimmer. Uh, Leah Thomas, who as recently as 2019 was competing as a man, has now been setting records for Division I women's swimming. But this debate, you write, carries a kind of deeper implication, and you, you touched on it a bit in your opening comments, that it's a kind of proxy battle for the more fundamental question, you write, of what makes us male or female. So what do you mean by that, and how do you see you know, some of these... Uh, these distinctions that exist between uh, transgender women who were born male and women who were born female in, in competitive sports. Okay, so look, I mean, the philosophical question of what makes us male or female is always in the background of all debates over transgender policy. Um, you know, you'd think that it would be front and center. Um, but as I've discovered over the course of my own research, uh, policymakers and advocacy groups have been uh, remarkable at um, getting institutional transformation without um, actually getting into the question of what it means for us to be male or female. What they do is they usually resort to therapeutic arguments about why it would be beneficial from the perspective of mental health and self-esteem uh, for people, and especially young people, to be identified as the sex that they um, claim to be. Um, now, look, I mean, this case of sports um, gets a lot of attention because this is where some of the abstract debates about human nature have very concrete and immediate consequences. 
um, you know, to say what's obvious, the only reason we separate sports by sex in the first place is because of the physical dif- differences between males and females and the relevance of these differences for athletic performance. Um, but, you know, this puts trans activists, I think, in a bit of an awkward position. And I mentioned this in, a, in, in my piece in Adam City Journal, because if they wanted to be consistent with their broader arguments about gender identity, um, they would, I think, push to eliminate any barriers to participation for any athlete who self-identifies as a girl or women. Um, They would say that neither hormone levels nor puberty should be relevant because, as they keep on telling us, a person's status as a woman has nothing whatsoever to do with the body, but only with this kind of murky, um, hard-to-define entity called the core self. Um, But of course, mainstream activists don't say this. Um, They haven't been willing to make the the consistent case. And the reason I think is equally obvious, which is that they'd face very strong, I'd say even stronger than they're facing now, uh, pushback from from liberals, from women's groups, um, and not just from conservatives. So instead, um, activists, and I'm referring here especially to the ACLU, which has been, I think, one of the most um, influential factors behind the uh, uh, institutional and legal uh, transformations that we've witnessed in in recent years, Um, activists have taken a more pragmatic, but I think for that reason, also more philosophically confused approach. Um, And what they've said is that um, states should not uh, pass these blanket bans on transgender women um, um, from competing in women's sports, that these bans are, are overly broad and therefore unconstitutional. But notice what this means, Brian. This means that they accept in principle that banning at least some female self-identified athletes from women's sports is acceptable and even necessary. Um, so, you know, I think that that this that sports is a good arena for critics of the gender self-identification movement to focus on um, because it's here more than in any other place that trans activists agree, although they obviously won't admit it outright, that not all female-identified people should count as women. Um, So the question is not whether to draw the line at at self-identification, but where. Um, And, you know, if defining male and female depends not just on the sincerity of a person's feelings or on what, from a therapeutic perspective, would happen to that person if society didn't recognize their identity, if it depends on on competing considerations for, in this case, you know, fairness and safety for non-transgender athletes, then why not apply that same principle of public policy, uh, right? Recognition of competing ends, of, of, uh, of means. Um, why not apply that same principle to other policy arenas like restrooms and prisons? Well, one, you know, one way the transgender debate has also evolved in recent years um, is that some dedicated advocates of what's called gender affirming care, which amounts to the use of puberty blockers, um, specialized cross-sex hormones, uh, and ultimately sex reassignment surgery to treat gender dysphoria. Well, they've begun to walk back some of the maximalist claims about using this kind of therapy with with children. Um, You know, as the and, and I wonder what you think about this, too, as the number of young children identifying as transgender has, has increased pretty substantially. And I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about that. Um, so, though, does the number of young adults who, having gone through these therapies, which are irreversible in some cases, um, they come to regret it. And so it's, 
it's now um, at least becoming, um, uh, you know, a, a pretty aggressive debate, and not just among conservatives and transgender activists, but among the general public, that this is not the right thing to be doing to um, children suffering from gender dysphoria. So, you know, how do you see this development going? Do you think we're going to move in a saner direction on this? Because there has been some, and we've written about this in City Journal, some pretty extreme cases um, of, of, you know, sex reassignment surgery being done on very young people. Um, you know, what, what's your view of how that debate is going to develop? And why do you think we are getting more young children um, identifying in this way? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so good question. Let me let me start, Brian, by by making a suggestion, um, and, and I think that this is something that I want to start pushing a little bit. Um, instead of talking about kids who have gender dysphoria, I think we should talk about kids who have gender related distress. And the reason I say that is that um, the diagnosis of the thresholds for diagnosing gender dysphoria have seemed to have gone down. And that is one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot more kids getting uh, puberty blockers and um, cross-sex hormones. Um, You know, gender dysphoria is a form of gender-related distress, but having gender-related distress need not mean having gender dysphoria. So I think using that term, I think is just a a more accurate way, a more precise way, um, and a better way to get at at the, the core issue here, which is whether in fact or when um, kids should be getting these these, uh, medications, if at all. So look, I mean, to answer your question, this is mostly a matter of speculation, but but let me offer a few thoughts here. Um, um, I'd say first, uh, you know, kind of generally reflecting on on, on where all of this is heading, if we're likely to see a pushback against um, gender-affirming medicine, I'd say first that this is not just a scientific debate, but also, and I think more fundamentally, a moral and philosophical one. Um, if you think about, for example, scientific disputes about, I don't know, the correct way to classify a certain dinosaur or the responsiveness of certain types of cells to certain kind of uh, pharmaceutical agents, these debates may or may not have political implications, but they are infused, they are, sorry, they're not infused um, with moral and metaphysical assumptions. Um, but that's not the case when it comes to gender-related distress in children. Most proponents of affirmative therapy will argue that medicine should give no preference whatsoever to achieving a cisgender over a transgender outcome when treating children with distress, because doing so would, you know, send a stigmatizing message that transgender people are not normal. But, you know, notice how that argument only holds water if you believe that the body and its reproductive capacities have nothing whatever to do with being male or female, which itself is not really a scientific question in the narrow modern meaning of science, but a metaphysical one. Um, In fact, it touches, I think, on the break between modern science and classical teleology or classical science. So it gets very complicated, I think, but the simple point is that gender medicine is so infused with these deeper philosophical questions that it just seems unlikely that the debate will ever be settled. Um, in addition, I'd say that you know research on gender-related distress in youth is very hard to conduct um, due to inevitable methodological limitations. Um, it will always be open to interpretation. Um, you know, to give an example, it's technically very difficult and probably ethically impossible to conduct a controlled experiment on gender-affirming therapy for kids. Um, in which, you know, some get counseling and others don't, some get hormones and others don't. 
And that means that most studies looking at these um, interventions um, at most can come up with, with correlations, which is what the authors of most of these studies will openly admit. It's the activists who then kind of misinterpret them and say, no, no, um, without gender affirming therapy, these kids will kill themselves and, and studies confirm that. Um, Add to this, I think, the fact that for research to happen, you need funding and scientists willing to pursue it, and in a political climate that treats any dissent from trans orthodoxy as heresy punishable by <laughs> academic excommunication, um, I think we're unlikely to see a critical mass of researchers who actually want to explore these issues with, with objectivity, but, but I, I hope I'll be proven wrong. The other thing that we should keep in mind is that science doesn't speak for itself. It needs mediators, um, journalists who can decipher these complicated findings and present them to the public. And I think one of the things I talk about in my in my um, most recent City Journal piece um, is, is just, I think, that the abysmal way in which especially left-leaning media outlets like The New York Times have covered the trans issue. Um, just, you know, dishonest or at the very least uh, sloppy. Um, but, you know, getting back to this question of, of uh, where is this heading concretely? Um, look, I think you're, first of all, you're starting to see bills prop up across the country, especially in red states that are trying to ban pediatric gender transition altogether. Um, that seems to me a bit of an overreaction, um, but it's entirely understandable. And I have sympathy for those efforts because I think if there's one thing the medical establishment has proven to us over the last few years, is that it's unable or unwilling to regulate itself. Um, and it's not clear to me what other approaches there are. Um, so, you know, this means that the tiny, and I mean tiny minority of kids who actually have gender dysphoria, lifelong acute agony over their biological sex, um, they're not likely to be able to get the kind of um, uh, interventions they need. But, you know, the, the, the upshot is that the vast majority of kids who are getting hormones nowadays are not going to get not going to get them. And, they, and good, that's a good thing because they don't need them. You know, the, the U.S. really does seem to be an outlier on this, though. Um, you know, if you look at some progressive Western European countries, um, you know, Sweden, the U.K., they, they seem more cautious, right, on on these issues. They're not going as far as the U.S. So so why do you think it's been just so, um, you know, so fervent here? Yeah, th that's a question I've really been wrestling with um, uh, recently. I, I think your characterization as us being an outlier is entirely correct. Um, Sweden, you know, which is nobody's idea of, uh, you know, a bastion of, of right-wing reactionism. Um, and France recently came out with guidelines recommending against gender transition in all but the most extreme circumstances. Um, you know, they acknowledge that, that the evidence for the benefits of transition is weak or at least incomplete and that the balance of risks favors a much more cautious approach than we've taken here in the United States. Um, in case your listeners don't know, um, the, the approach known as affirming therapy actually has two versions. Um, one is the original version that was invented by a team of Dutch researchers in the 90s and which calls for rigorous vetting of teenagers before giving them hormones. Um, you know, once this approach came to American shores during the 2000s, um, people like Johanna Olson Kennedy and Diana, uh, Diane Ehrensaft and a few other um, uh, psycho uh, clinical psychologists really kind of pushed to lower the thresholds almost to the point of non-existence. So that now affirming therapy in the American context means that there should be very little or no gatekeeping. 
and that clinicians and also parents and teachers should simply defer to what children say about their gender, um, even children before adolescence. Now, why this is happening is an interesting question. I think part of it has to do with the decentralized nature of our political and medical system. Um, you know, we don't have a national healthcare institution like the UK's Gender Recognition Panel or the NHS's Tavistock Clinic. Um, so imposing unified standards is a lot harder. Um, you know, even data on just how many kids are showing up for hormone therapy nowadays is, is very difficult to come by in the United States, whereas in other countries, it's a lot more transparent. And so we can see what's going on there. But part of it, I think, also has to do with our polarization and how that polarization is ripping through our institutions. Um, just to give you an example, uh, the New York Times has spent the past few years wokifying itself, um, and with rare exception, it's avoided publishing any critical commentary on gender self-identification. By contrast, you know the closest thing that you could probably find to the New York Times in the UK, which is The Guardian, um, has published quite a few pieces by feminists, by medical experts um, that are critical of pediatric gender transition and even of transgenderism as such. And then I think the last thing I'd say of why, you know, affirming therapy has gone um, so far and, and become so extreme in the United States as compared to other countries. And I think that has to do with our individualistic culture. Again, I mentioned this in the piece. Um, you know, the conventional definition of sex presupposes that we humans are interconnected and therefore interdependent beings. Um, that, you know, there's a side of our nature that longs for something outside, um, outside of or beyond the self. Um, and it's hard, I think, to think of a more perfect example of the, of the individualism in our culture than the idea that, no, sex is actually in an internal, private experience with no reference to anyone else but myself. Um, of course, the paradox here is that that kind of definition of male and female leaves us all the more dependent on recognition by others. And so all the more anxious to make sure that they have the right opinion about us. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of kind of moral panic about these identity issues, um, even though the, the language and the tone is, is very, very individualistic and, and solipsistic. Well, well, thank you very much, uh, Lior. It's an interesting uh, conversation and uh, your, your work, as I had mentioned at the outset, has been very illuminating on this and we're looking forward to running a lot more of it. Uh, for listeners, please check out uh, Leo Sapir's work. You can find it on the City Journal website. It's www.city-journal.org. Uh, we'll link to his author page in the description so you can, you can find it easily. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And uh, as usual, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. So thanks again, Leo. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.